chapter 5, and in chapter 3 and 4, Haman got disrespected by Mordecai, and Mordecai made it known that the reason for his disrespect was because he was a Jew, and we said uh, that Jews don't actually routinely have a problem with state bows, if you will, to heads of state. If a Jew were to go in and meet the queen, an English citizen Jew would go in and meet the queen, he would bow, and there's no big deal. The thing that uh, Jews have a problem bowing down to are idols. You can infer from that that what Ahasuerus is doing through Haman is he is setting up his empire in much the same way as Pharaoh set up his empire and Nebuchadnezzar set up his empire, where essentially the state became an object of worship. And of course, the focus of that worship was the emperor or the king or the pharaoh. Because if that's not the case, for Mordecai to put all of his countrymen in danger by stepping up and saying, I'm doing this because I'm a Jew, and if the only reason he's doing that is because he's got a fit of peep, then he's not really a hero. He's just kind of a jerk. So you have to look for something deeper than just Mordecai is upset at the elevation of Haman, who happens to be a jerk. It, it's got to be something more than that. So anyway, Haman goes into the king and offers him a bribe of 10,000 talents of silver to allow all the Jews in the empire to be killed. And the way he casts it is as these Jews are not loyal to you. They follow their own laws. They follow their own customs. So really, O king, I am doing you a favor by taking these malcontents out of your empire. And oh, by the way, the 10,000 talents of silver doesn't say it directly in the scripture, is in fact going to be plundered from the Jews when they're destroyed. So it is not the case that Haman is coming up with 10,000 talents of his own personal silver to get this done. The edict that goes out doesn't mention the 10,000 talent bribe. That's a side deal between the king and Haman. So as far as anybody is concerned, this is just a really high-minded thing, much like what the Nazis did. You know, it's a really high-minded thing to get rid of these subhuman kind of people. When Mordecai learns of the edict, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and goes and sits in the gate where he is conspicuous, which is to say he is engaging in civil disobedience. You know, sort of like Occupy Wall Street where they all lie down and, and have a die-in in front of a bank. Or, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Esther is disturbed, and when she finds out what the problem is, Mordecai tells her that she needs to intervene with the king to save her people. She says that she hasn't seen the king in a month, and the new edict with the new chief of staff is that anybody that shows up in the throne room without having been invited is subject to the death penalty unless the king extends his scepter and grants a reprieve. Her comment is, I'll go do it, but we need to have a three-day fast with no food and no water, and at the end of that time, I'll go before the king. And her comment is, if I perish, I perish. Now, as I said last time, I think from a practical perspective, the chances of him killing her over this are very slim. He's already gone through the process of getting rid of one queen. Didn't like that process especially. Don't think he wants to do it again. 
but you know there is this this formal edge of danger if you will to understand the dynamics here Esther is a young woman don't know how old she was when she got picked up in the beauty contest but this is now seven years after she got married so assuming she's married somewhere in her late teens early 20s she's still not 30 years old at least according to the story there is no track record of her giving the king any advice whatsoever on state matters. There's no record of him asking of her any advice on state matters. Haman has been hired specifically to stand between the king and all of these affairs of state. So for her to take a run directly at Haman, who has been hired to take care of matters like this, one of which is the pogrom against the Jews, for her to attack him there is probably not a winner. Because she has, I mean, it would be like have a problem in business and you go in and you're getting your nails done and you're asking advice for, from your manicurist. Manicurist may be a wonderful, intelligent person, but as far as you know, doesn't particularly have any special expertise in your business problem. So it would be an inappropriate person to ask. So for her, the queen, Esther, to go into the king and say, hey, O king, this policy expert that you just hired is doing something really bad and you need to change your mind, she has no standing or credibility in that arena. So what she's going to do now is take the problem out of Haman's arena and bring it into her arena. And her arena is the king's family. See, Haman is a policy advisor. Very unlikely that he knows anything about what goes on in the king's harem. That's a completely different set of functions under a completely different staff guy. And it's very unlikely that Haman has anything to do in that area. So what Esther is going to do here is going to take the thing out of the throne room, out of the realm of the policy, of, out of the realm of state policy, and bring it into essentially her apartment, her chambers, where now Haman is the one who's out of place. So that's the strategy she's going to pursue. Let's see how, it, how she does it now. So now I'm in, in Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting in his royal palace inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She has not been invited. However, what she's done with her three-day fast and you all have done Yom Kippur, and you know 24 hours without food and water, you're kind of dry, and your hair's all, you know, you got a bad case of bedhead, and, you know, it just, you don't look your best. So you can imagine after three days, she probably looks like she's been dragged through a knothole. So she comes in front of the king, not looking her perky best. He can see immediately that there's something wrong. And so he, with his lightning-fast mind, says, whoa, this must be serious for her to come to me unbidden, looking like that. 
So you understand what she's setting up here. She's, she's setting this thing up so that, A, she has the, the greatest opportunity for success, and B, so that she's playing on the king's paranoia. And we'll see that in a minute. Verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. This even to the half of my kingdom is a formula. There is no serious offer here of half of the kingdom. It is simply the king saying something magnanimous. Okay? Nobody expects that anybody's going to ask for half the kingdom. Furthermore, nobody is stupid enough to ask for half the kingdom. It's simply, I'm in a generous mood, ask me for something. It's really no more serious than that. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may go as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now two things. Notice now that she has brought the king and Haman out of the palace, out of the area of state, into her chambers, which is now family space. She's also setting up, you and I haven't been together in 30 days, Esther, and you've asked me to come to a banquet. What's this jerk Haman doing here? In the normal ebb and flow of a marriage, if it's been a while since you've been together, and one of you has asked the other one, hey, come on into my chambers here, why are we bringing Haman along on this? So what she's doing now is she's sowing the seeds of paranoia in the king's mind. Now, the other thing to notice is, and you'll see this more and more as we go through, the king enjoys jerking Haman around. He has set Haman up in a very powerful position because he's the interface between the king and the kingdom. And so one of the things that the king does to sort of make sure that Haman understands that he's the king and Haman is not, is he'll just reach out and jerk him around just because he can. So when Queen Esther invites the king and Haman to come in for the dinner, it's just, hey, get Haman in here, we're going to supper. And Haman is expected to be there. Haman, of course, being the toad that he is, puffs up and, oh, wow, look at me, I'm being honored. But the underlying subtext is, is, we're going to supper, you're coming, let's go. Verse 6. And when they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You've all heard Scheherazade, right? Thousand and One Nights. It's an Arab story. The story is there's a king, and what he does is he marries a different woman each day and has her killed the next morning. Scheherazade is chucked up as the next one in the king's queue, and she goes in and spends the night with the king, and what she does is she tells a story. And she's apparently a really good storyteller. And she leaves it at the end without being finished. And she says, just have to wait till tomorrow night to hear the end of the story, O'Sheik. 
So she comes back the next night and she tells the end of that story and she starts another one. And this goes on for a thousand and one nights. At the end of that, the sheik finally says, fine, you're my wife. You're no longer in any danger. So Esther is doing the same kind of a thing here. So what she's doing is she's, she's set this big feast up. She's brought the king and Haman in. They've had this wonderful feast, wine, good food, good conversation, the whole nine yards. And the king says, okay, now, why did you ask me for this? And, and oh, by the way, parenthesis, you've got to be asking for something because Haman is here. You didn't just invite me. So this, this has to be some kind of a request that you have. And she does the Shehrazad bit and says, let's do this again tomorrow night, and then I'll tell you what my, my request is. Verse 9, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of the, his riches, the number of his sons, all the proclamations which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. All right, now remember, Haman has hesitated up until this point to single out Mordecai. Mordecai is the target, always has been. But he can't go to the king and say, there's this one guy that won't bow out to me, O king. We need to get him killed. Because then he looks in front of the king like some petty vindictive fool. Whereas if he elevates to an affair of state, you have this people that is not following your laws, O king. And oh, by the way, one of them is this guy Mordecai. And he takes them all out. Then it looks like an affair of principle. So the question becomes, why now does he change his tactics? First part of the answer then is, that he is feeling like he's riding pretty high and he can risk it. Okay, that's certainly part of it. I think perhaps the other part is Mordecai is visible. And the longer Mordecai sits there and is visibly defying him, the more probability that there is going to be some other difficulty. He's really got to take care of Mordecai before Mordecai's rebellion spreads. And the idea on the first one where he gets the, gets the edict that we're going to take out all the Jews, the idea there is that Mordecai becomes terrified and quits, falls on his face, begs for mercy for his people. In that case, Haman is one. That's the idea. Didn't happen. So now we have a problem because Mordecai is doing civil disobedience, and if that goes on long enough, we have a more serious problem than just this one Jew won't bite onto me. Couple that with, gee, I've just been invited into the king's wife's chamber for dinner. I'm riding real high. This is the time to do it. This is the time to take that risk. So now we're down to chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. 
and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Why can't the king sleep? I will suggest that the big thing that's going on right now is paranoia because he has elevated Haman to the top spot. He's between the king and the empire. The king's family is not part of Haman's duties. Now all of a sudden Haman is invited and involved in a tete-a-tete with his wife. Maybe Haman is too powerful. Maybe I have set something up here that is not going quite the way I hope it would go. And oh, by the way, what's the deal with the queen and Haman? I will suggest that a possible thing that's going through his mind is he's becoming a bit paranoid, which is what Esther has set up. The other possibility, which you'll find in most commentaries, is the Holy Spirit is poking him and, and getting him to move. And by the way, those two things are not mutually exclusive. If we assume, as I do, that the thing that got Haman elevated to number two was the assassination plot. So now what he's doing is he's reading about that event that had caused him to elevate Haman, and in that event he sees somebody else, Mordecai. Every powerful leader has got a problem. And the problem is, how do you find somebody who will look after your best interests? It is no trick whatsoever to find somebody that will do what you'll tell him to do. Surrounding yourself with guys that say, you know, I need this, go get it, fetch it, that do what you tell them to do is no problem at all. Those people are a dime a dozen and they're not very valuable. They can be replaced. What typically happens is a person like that begins to think that he is truly important because the king sends him out to do important things. Such a person begins to think he's important and then begins to look for advancement. That typically gets him removed because really all they are is doing what they're told. What's far more valuable is somebody who's out there who will do what the king would do in that circumstance without going back and checking with the king. Mordecai is such a person in the king's eyes because Mordecai, seeing the assassination plot, stepped up, exposed the plot, got the situation taken care of without ever talking to the king. So the king, reading this report, sees this is somebody who will look after my interests even when I'm not there. This is a valuable person. It is not clear that Haman is such a person. Chapter 6, verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king 
delight to honor more than me. In other words, Haman has just come from an intimate dinner with the king and the queen, feeling very full of himself. The king is looking to do somebody some honor. Haman's reaction is, huh, do it to me. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man with whom the king delights to honor, and let him lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is Haman's first misstep. Big mistake. If, as I have suggested, the king is borderline paranoid right now, Haman has just said, I want to be king. So the king is, as I say, if not full-fledged paranoid, at least borderline paranoid at this point. And Haman steps up and says, oh, I'll tell you what you can do. Make him look like you. Make him be king for the day. And the thing that would be going through the king's mind is the thing that would go through my mind. Ah, okay, this guy has got ambitions and designs on my throne. This is obviously something he's thought about. So this is Haman's first serious mistake. I mean, other than (laughs) taking on the Jews, but that's not something Haman would realize. This one he should have realized. This is a big mistake. Especially because he thinks it's for himself. If, for example, Mordecai had been standing there and the king had said, hey, I want to do Mordecai some honor. How do I do that? For Haman to say, well, do all of this stuff for him, doesn't look so personal. But what he's done is he's opened up his soul in front of the king, and the king doesn't like what he sees. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Notice, this is another instance of the king jerking Haman around. And what the king is doing here is the king is demonstrating to Haman, you are number two. And when I say jump, the only thing I want to hear from you is how high on your way up. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely fall before him. Now, I don't know why they didn't give him that advice several paragraphs ago, but they didn't. 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Notice that the king just sort of reaches out whenever he wants Haman and says, come on, boy. So now we're just down to chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, 
Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. So what she's saying here is, I want myself and my people to be spared. If the decree had simply been to sell us as slaves, I wouldn't have said a word because we would have still been of use to the kingdom. But what's going to happen now as we're destroyed is the king is going to suffer a loss. He's going to suffer a loss of our, of our talent and our energy and everything else. So this decree is going to be a loss to the king. And notice how she's phrasing this. She's phrasing it in terms of what benefit is this request to you, O king, not what benefit is this to me, O king. The fact that she and her people are going to live is being cast as just sort of incidental to doing a good thing for the king, which, by the way, of course, is how Haman cast the destruction, which tells you something about the king. Verse 5. When King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? So at this point, he still does not know she's a Jew. And I don't know whether he remembers the decree to have the Jews just, I mean, you know, sort of like, yeah, I signed lots of papers. Oh, I did what? I just don't know whether he realizes that. Verse 6, And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So at this point, Haman recognizes he's been mousetrapped. He has been sucked out of his arena of power and expertise, which is the court, and has been sucked into her arena of power and expertise, which is the bedroom. He has been set up with a tete-a-tete -tete between himself and the king and the queen, and all of a sudden lights are going on saying, whoa, this really looks bad. And he never even saw it coming. And by the way, that's going to play into the later part of the books because one of the things that we've said in the past is there's sort of four different temperaments of leadership in exile for Israel. You've got Joseph, you've got Moses, you've got Mordecai, and you've got Daniel, who are the four great leaders of the Jewish or Hebrew people in exile. Each of them comes from a different tribe. Joseph comes from Ephraim, and Joseph is a good bureaucrat. If you're in exile for a while, you want Joseph in charge because things will go really well. He rises to the second place in the kingdom. He takes care of his own people. Everything goes well. The next one is Moses. Moses is a Levite. Levites are hotheads. Levi is capable of going up in front of Pharaoh and looking him straight in the eyes and saying, I'm going to talk. You're going to listen, O Pharaoh. Joseph does not have that in him. He, never, he doesn't even go to Pharaoh to ask to bury his own father. He, he sends the message around from the side. Not a confrontational guy. Moses is. Moses is very confrontational. And then the third one is Daniel, and Daniel's from the tribe of Judah. Daniel is also a capable administrator, but Daniel is lethal because Nebuchadnezzar's advisors and King Belteshazzar all take a run at Daniel, and Daniel is able to parry the thrust and basically destroy the people who come after him. So he doesn't go looking for trouble. He's a very competent administrator, just like Joseph is. But when he has to, he's able to get up there and whack people. The fourth one is Mordecai, who's from the tribe of Benjamin. 
And if you remember the, the prophecy that Jacob gave to his sons on his deathbed, Benjamin is a ravening wolf. And Esther, by the way, is also of the tribe of Benjamin. So Esther and Mordecai are of Benjamin, and they are lethal. And furthermore, Haman never even saw it coming. He never recognized that there was any danger until he was dead. And what's going to happen later on, remember I said that it's something like 60 days between the destruction of Haman and the going out of the second decree. The second decree only goes out when Esther has a second audience with the king and comes in and says, hey, O king, we need to do something here because he has not been inclined to do anything. And what I will suggest to you, and I'll suggest it again when we get there, is I think Esther has got him a bit spooked because he sees what she and her cousin are able to do to Haman without anybody seeing it until the, until the axe falls. And he says, huh, what if they decide to come after me? So she's, by this business here, has established herself as a power player. And so when she goes in the second time and asks for the second decree, I will suggest that he's probably a bit nervous, as I say, as he should be. So verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. What I will suggest is going on here is the king is royally ticked. And what he's done is he's gotten up and he's gone out of the room because he needs to get himself collected before he comes back and does something. He, he is so mad right now that he doesn't have control over himself, so he just goes out into the garden, give himself time to take a few deep breaths before he comes back in and deals with the situation. Verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king says, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So Haman is basically falling down, pleading for his life. The king just comes in and sees the falling down. She has set it up so that he's paranoid and suspicious about what's going on between her and Haman. So when he sees this, I don't know whether he suspects the worst or he just says, okay, that's the worst, and we're going to treat it as if it were the worst. So verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Harbona has been around all along. Well, the thing is, nobody likes Haman. Haman is set up to be a jerk. The reason that Haman has been chosen is because Haman is an asshole. That's the, one of the selection criteria. I want somebody who is a real horse's ass. I want somebody that is going to stand between me and everybody else and is going to be ruthless. Everybody's afraid of Haman. So now, when Haman all of a sudden has lost his position in a moment, all of the pent-up fear, anger, frustration, all of a sudden comes immediately to the surface and, and Harbona says, Ah, hey, king, guess what I know? There's a gallows out there we can use. 
He never would have said anything like that while Haman had a shred of power. But given the opportunity, he jumps right on him and stabs him. Politics is returned with a vengeance. Harbona was one of the original eunuchs at the king's party. And he's been cut out. He's lost his power, lost his influence under Haman. And so he, like all of the rest of the court, is not at all unhappy to see Haman fall and is looking for an opportunity to come in behind him. Verse 10. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. That's the end of uh, chapter 7. I'm not going to go on to chapter 8 because that is going to merit more discussion than I can give it in nine minutes. And also we have decided that we're going to continue past the end of this into the apocryphal books. So when we get through Esther 9, which is the end of the canonical book of Esther, we will continue on into the apocrypha for the extra books. Would somebody like closing prayer? Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.